You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a very special guest, Astro Teller, who is the captain of Moonshots at X, which is formerly Google X, and Alphabet's secretive facility in Silicon Valley that has produced audacious inventions, such as a self-driving car and internet-outfitted eyeglasses. He got two degrees here, his bachelor's and his master's in computer science and symbolic systems, and then got his PhD and Carnegie Mellon in artificial intelligence. Astro also launched five companies, holds numerous patents, and he's here to tell us about the secret life at Google X. Join me in welcoming Astro. So I wanted to start by telling you something that happened six days ago at X, which was a little bit unusual. And then maybe we can go back a little bit and unpack how something like that happened. So we have these audacious goals awards. Once a quarter, we get together, and everyone presents how they're doing, and there's a trophy. The trophy hasn't been given out in a year now because it's really hard to get this trophy, and I'll talk a little bit about what it takes to get this trophy. I think people care a lot. I've seen a team cry, and this was a team of patent lawyers, by the way, who were weeping. They were so happy when they got this trophy. So we had our read back from Q1 that happened just Thursday last week. And very unusually, three different teams potentially merited that trophy. Usually it's nobody. That's why we haven't given it out in a year. So the star chamber, which was me and uh, my admin, Sergio, uh, did, went and like huddled and decided who actually deserved it, picked the one of the three teams that we thought actually had been the most audacious of the three that had potentially earned it, and then awarded them the trophy at the end of the all hands. And the person came up to accept the award, who was sort of like the main lieutenant for that group, because the head of the group uh, wasn't there at the time. And he took it. He said, thank you. And then he said, but I don't think that we're doing good enough. I don't think we've been audacious enough. I'm handing it back to you. It's like, we can't give the award away. It's been a year since anybody got it. In and, and this was with many, many hundreds of people watching, people have been waiting all year. Why would someone hand the award back? So I want to take a step back now and tell you the thing that excites me the most. This is some of the stuff that I couldn't get into the TED Talk, which I gave recently in Vancouver, that's up online now. But that, in some ways, because it was a TED Talk, has to skim the surface of the stuff that I'm most excited about and not get into some of the details. I'm a culture engineer. The thing that excites me the most is not making stratospheric balloons or self-driving cars or working on contact lenses or on UAVs that can deliver packages. The thing that excites me the most is trying to systematize innovation. And 
When I was young, I used to think that systematizing innovation might be some combination of things you could get if you just went to all the business books and you picked out the smartest things from each of the business books. Hire the smartest people and fail fast and this and that and the other thing. It's kind of true. It just turns out that if you do that, you don't actually get much innovation. What excites me is what would it take to actually get a a group of people to do the things that it says in those business books that you guys have all read. If this is the set of things they should do, and this is the set of things they do do, and for any of you who've been in business before, you know how big a gulf there is. Wherever you worked, I promise you, that gulf existed. There's a reason that there's such a big gap between the things that that you want them to do and the things they actually spend their time doing. It's because this is the lip service that you're giving, but this is the paths of least resistance emotionally to doing those things. They don't care what you said they should do. They're going to follow the paths of emotional least resistance. Cultural engineering is the process of trying to get this, the paths of least resistance, to actually line up with the things you want them to do. So I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, So then the first one is, let me unpack a little bit more about the Audacious Goals. So here's how uh, most companies do something sort of like the Audacious Goals. Have you guys heard of OKRs, Objectives and Key Results? So this is the way Objectives and Key Results actually works in a business. You are going to need to be, you you report to me, and you're going to have to be held accountable by me, because I'm the manager. So we're going to start this weird haggle situation. We're going to figure out what your OKRs are. You're going to try to haggle them as low as you can, sandbag, 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 because you know I'm going to hold you accountable for whatever it is that we decide on. So that I can feel you pulling them down. So I'm going to pull them up, 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 up. I want to haggle, haggle, haggle. You can do more. You can do more. You're sandbagging. And we end up in this place in the middle where now you feel like you don't really own that OKR. It's higher than the things that you were saying and you were making all these arguments about why that's an unreasonable number or metric for me to hold you to. It's either the wrong metric or it's too big relative to what you think you can actually accomplish. And I feel bad, too, because I feel like it's two-thirds or half of what I actually was trying to talk you into. So now we have this thing that neither of us believes in, and this is the OKR. This is a stick. It's a weapon. And my management plan for the entire quarter or year is I'm going to beat you with the OKR stick. You're not doing it enough. You're not doing it enough. This is 21st century management somehow. It doesn't work very well. This is not how to get people to be innovative. You cannot get them to do the things you really want them to do, especially if your lip service includes things like creativity and failing fast and being transparent and a lot of emotionally hard things while you're beating them with the OKR stick. Crazy idea. What if instead you just got to pick what you were going to do? Let's call it your audacious goal for the quarter. It's your goal. I'm not going to haggle with you about it. You pick it. You get up in front of all of us once a quarter and say, 
I'm going to try to get this thing done, and I know that I'm almost certain not to get it done, but I'm proud of the fact that I'm going to try to do something that sounds so crazy hard, so unlikely. The goal is to have it be something that you can accomplish about one-tenth of the time. I mean, if you're positive you're not going to accomplish it, that's not very interesting. You're not really going to try. On the other hand, if you're confident you're going to do it, it's not audacious by definition. So you want it to be in that sort of 10% range. And you're going to end up getting held accountable by yourself, because you picked it, and by the whole community, because you want everyone to be proud of you. Now, I can be your coach and mentor instead of having to beat you with the OKR stick. So, at X, we have audacious goals. And every quarter, every team gets up and says, here is what our audacious goal for the quarter was, here's how we did against it, and here's what we're going to try to do for the next quarter. And some teams don't do it some quarters, and that's actually okay too. They don't look as audacious when they don't do it, but that's fair game because you need to be crisp about what you're going to do if you're going to try to do it. So now think in that context that after a year of not handing this out, we offered someone the trophy and they said, no, thank you. We're not being audacious enough. Somehow, they've internalized something really deep and meaningful. They were actually one-upping me on the things I'm trying to get X to be like. That's when the magic starts happening. When the flywheel is speeding itself up and so you don't have to keep speeding it up. That's great corporate culture. That's what you want to unlock in any organization that you're part of or that you're overseeing. How did that happen? Let me give you two or three other examples of the kinds of things that might have led to uh, this person, Grant, saying no thank you and handing the trophy back to me. So one of them is, you know, fail fast, lean startup, um, predotyping, I don't know which ones of these things you've heard recently. They're all fine, they're all true. It, it, it's, it's that saying it doesn't make it happen. I'm going to tell you something else that we do, and afterwards it will sound kind of shocking and yet basic. I encourage you to find anywhere else that has actually done this. When one of our projects that actually has like a non-trivial number of people, at least a few people full-time on it, ends their project, and they end their projects. So I'll tell you a story about that. We bring them up and stay on stage. We have a bunch of Xers here, and they've seen this multiple times. We bring them up on stage, and we say, this team is ending their project today. They have done more in ending their project in this quarter than any of you did to further innovation at X in the last quarter. And then all of you, are, especially the first time you hear this, are going to feel a little ripped off. Like, wait a second. They're failing. They're calling it a day. I'm working my ass off. How come they're up on stage? That seems kind of unfair. Then I say, and we're giving them bonuses. And you say, wait, I'm not getting a bonus. Why are they getting a bonus? They're killing their project. I'm actually succeeding. Mine's still going. You know what, guys? Take a vacation. And when you come back, the world's your oyster. You'll find some new project to start, or you can pick which project to jump into, depending on which one's going best. At this point, all of you are a little mystified, if this is your first time through this, and feeling quite ripped off. 
But social norms are incredibly powerful. People will do horrible, horrible things to each other if you set the social norms appropriately. They will also do incredibly innovative, creative, uh, expressive, transparent things if you create the right norms for it. By the tenth time that we do this, it's normal. I don't even have to remind people anymore when we stand them up that they should get a huge round of applause and that everyone there should be looking up to the people who ended the projects. But have you ever heard of somebody actually getting rewarded? Because if I tell you to fail fast, are you going to run out if you're part of our organization and fail fast just because I said it? No. You're going to be thinking, well, what happens if I fail fast? Am I going to get fired? I mean, I'm going to lose all the people who are reporting to me, right? So then I suck, and then I'll have to like, go tell you know, like my friends I was kind of demoted. Am I going to get my bonus at the end of the year? Well, like, what happens to my compensation or my, my opportunity for promotion? Are those things all out the window? This is the difference between the lip service and the actual emotional paths of least resistance. Creating the feeling that failing fast would actually get you what you want instead of getting you the opposite of what you want. So here's a story for how one of these teams got up on stage in the first place. I was sitting with maybe 30 of them. We'd been working for about two months. Uh, their manager, their, the general manager for this project, hadn't been working out great. Eventually, we had to, to move that person out of the organization. I had become the temporary general manager. I already could kind of smell where things were going, but I didn't want to prejudge I said, look, we're going to decide whether this is going to the moon or whether we're going to call it a day. You guys need to come to me with that decision. And they were having a hard time doing that, and they were working on kind of some business planning and technical planning and sort of restructuring their thinking. And eventually, they got me a doc. It was seriously that thick. 30 people in the room. We all sat down. I think they thought I had pre-read the doc. I really hadn't even cracked it. And I said, all right, who's with me? We're all going to spend the next 18 you know, years of our lives, if that's what it takes, to cause this to change the world. 18 hours a day, if that's what it takes. We will quit X, all of us, and go do this. Who's with me? No one's hand went up. And I just waited. I, I hadn't even looked at the business plan. I just kept waiting. Maybe a good 30 seconds a minute, which was very long when you're all just sitting there and I'm the only one with my hand up. And I said, sounds like you guys need to talk amongst yourselves a little bit. I went away. They called me about three hours later and said, okay, come back. And I came back and they said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I hadn't actually, I said we should leave. I, and they said, it's good, but it's not great. Like, we don't really think it's that great a business. Awesome. That wasn't so bad. Adi, sitting right there, was in the room for that and was part of the shepherd of helping them during the three hours when I wasn't there. Um, come to that conclusion. But they said it to me. When I say it to them, they've been fired. They've been demoted. Their project has been ruined. Because they have no ownership of that moment. But when they say, yeah, you're right, they're taking ownership of their own time, of their own lives, 
which believe me is the only really precious thing. When your pretty good but not great project is over, you're not just going to go sit in a corner and do nothing afterwards. You're going to get on to something that's better than that, almost by definition if it was a good but not great project. And that they owned that, then they didn't feel like it was being wrest away from them. And then they got stood up in front of X and congratulated and bonused and vacationed. And you know what? Most of those people, I think like all but one or two of those people are still somewhere in Alphabet. A decent number of them are still in X. There was actually a whole group that sort of recombined around a new project that actually went fabulously well. And we've now graduated out of X to another part of Alphabet. And I think that they're super happy and we gave them hugs on their way out and begged them to come back when they're done uh, with that thing and ready for another tour of duty at X. This is not a failure moment. The word failure and trying to get people to fail is a bit of a misnomer. First of all, it's missing this path of least resistance issue because people don't want to do it. Failure, when it's actually just you got a negative result for no reason and it's meaningless, is a bad thing. I am not pro-failure. I'm pro-learning. Another thing that we, we talk about a lot at X, you guys can all probably run this experiment uh, in your own mind, especially if you've been at work somewhere for at least a few years. Imagine a project that took a non-trivial amount of time to do, at least months. Think about when you were done, you and probably a group of other people, but even just by yourself. When you're done, you lose all the code, all the tools, whatever it is, but you still remember having finished and, and what it took to finish it. If you had to build it from scratch, whatever it was that's in your mind right now, how long would that really take to do it again? 10% of the time as the first time? We have a name for the other 90%. I mean, we could call it wasted time, but that's not really what it was. You were learning what the right thing to do is. Innovation is that 90%. It's how much you can either compress the time in that 90% or compress the cost of that 90%. That's it. That's innovation. And that's why failure matters. That's why we send people out to fail. But we don't mean go not be good. That's not what we mean by suggesting that failure is positive. We mean find incredibly efficient ways to learn, time-efficient or cost-efficient ways to learn. And then you have to create these opportunities for them to feel good about it, like some of the ones that I just described to you. Uh, another one that we're trying right now, I think it's working pretty well, but maybe the, the jury's not totally in on this one yet, is you guys have heard of postmortems. Maybe some of you have done postmortems. A postmortem is you wait till something's dead, and then you look at you know, it being dead, and you talk about why it died, and you try to learn something from the fact that it's dead so that you can you know, kill it you know, faster or, or cause it not to be dead or its equivalent the next time. You learn from the death. That's why it's a post-mortem after death. We're doing pre-mortems. A pre-mortem is nothing other than trying to talk about the learning moment of a failure before we actually have the failure. We're so eager to learn from our failures, we don't want to wait till the failure happens to learn from it. It 
introduces a little bit of like one of those time machine movie questions where like if you actually then address it and then the failure doesn't happen, maybe it never would have happened in the first place. So uh, it's a, you don't get a good control experiment for these things, but actually saying to everybody in the organization, let's talk about what's wrong with us. Not in a survey monkey kind of way, but like let's really talk about it. Tell me what you think is the biggest risk for our organization overall, or for Project Loon, or for the self-driving car project. Tell me why we're going to fail. When we fail three years from now, what will that be, in your opinion? Write it down. Put it up there with your name on it, which is a little bit scary because some people can feel thrown under the bus when you actually call out these Achilles heels that you see or that you think might be there. Then have a mechanism, which we do, so you can just vote these up or down, which causes the things that more people think are actual risks, even if you didn't write it down. You'd be like, yeah, I agree, I agree, I agree, with these and not with those. No, I don't think those are problems. It causes the stuff that's probably the biggest risks to rise to the surface. And then there's commenting mechanisms so people can actually discuss it. Only if you get thrown under the bus, you say that, you know, Project Loon is going to have some problem, and you say what it is, and you work on Project Loon, and then people go after you about it, if our culture isn't one that rewards you for doing that, that's the last time you're going to do that. So making a mechanism like that actually isn't the hard part. It's a, I think it's a good thing. It's working for us. But the hard part is relentlessly and repeatedly chasing down those moments where it's not working. He needs a hug if he said something brave on that site. I mean a physical hug, an actual hug, or a high five or whatever. And then if he actually gets a hard time from someone for having written that down, what are we all going to do to defend him? Not just because he's right, he's probably wrong. Well, like, we don't know. There's a lot of smart people on the Loon Project. I'm sure they've already thought of it. But thank you for saying that, whether or not you're right. So... Uh, I'm going to give you one or two more of these things, and then I'm going to open it up for questions so you guys can start thinking about some of this stuff. But um, let me describe for you a little bit about the process that we have for going through uh, these things, because now that I've given you a flavor for how we're trying to set the expectations at X, it might make a little bit more sense. So we have a team, which is called the Rapid Eval Team. The Rapid Eval Team is supposed to take ideas from me, from you guys, literally, from the founders at Alphabet, anywhere they can get their hands on an idea. It doesn't matter where the idea is. There's an academic at, at Berkeley or Stanford or Johns Hopkins. Great. Every place is a legitimate place for great ideas to come from. How can we figure out as fast as possible that that's a bad idea? That is absolutely and explicitly the question. It sounds like that's not going to work. Like everyone just say everything's a bad idea. But if you set the, the tone the way I've just described it, people are actually interested in coming up with a real reason why it's a bad idea. You can't destroy the positivity that comes from saying crazy ideas. But if you say to me, hey, ridiculous idea, do you think we could get the power that's embodied in an avalanche somehow gathered, maybe that's like a way to generate energy. 
The correct answer, no matter what she said, is that's an awesome idea. She has to feel good about the level of creativity of her idea. I mean, if she said something, it's like, actually, there's 100 companies already doing that, and you, you purchased something from them yesterday, then maybe that's not an awesome idea. But assuming that it's really outside the box, the correct first answer, the only acceptable first answer is, wow, it's beautiful the way your brain works. Then, immediately, that's so great. How are we going to figure out that that's a bad idea, that that's not going to work? So she just got a little check mark with myself, with her peers, for having said something that was really interesting, that was innovative, that was different than what we were thinking before. And immediately she now also gets to not get another check mark if she can show the intellectual rigor for why it's a bad idea. Well, okay, like I guess we could try to generate avalanches, you know, and like we like how much is in an avalanche? It's good, it's not great. Okay, well maybe we could like move the thing that's going to turn all that potential energy and kinetic energy into, you know, watts of like stored energy. Maybe like we'll move it around so we can get like the avalanches as they fall. No, that's not really going to work. Like it won't take us but five minutes to sort out that there's probably no practical way to do that. Good, awesome. We've figured out rigorously, not just in our gut, that that's not going to work, and we can move on. Because the rate-limiting step to innovation is not finding smart people. You're all plenty smart enough. It is not being creative. How many people here in this room think that you're highly creative? Good. (laughs) The other half of you are wrong. (laughs) You're all highly creative. How many of you think you were creative when you were six? Who wasn't creative when they were six years old? I mean, you don't have a six-year-old if you think that you were creative when you were six. We just get it beaten out of us by society. I promise you, you were creative when you were six years old. We all were. We've just forgotten how because the context isn't inspiring us, isn't allowing us. It's literally blocking us. But that's not the problem. The problem is how to get a huge number of ideas on the table and then weed through them effectively, which is not about process, it's about creating an environment where people feel like they can be rewarded in emotional ways and financial ways for doing that. A tiny fraction of these ideas then pass through to our sort of second stage booster rocket, which we called Foundry. In the first stage, most of the de-risking that we do is on the technical front building prototypes, verifying that it's not some isomorphism to like a perpetual motion machine. You'd be surprised. Probably one in a hundred of the ideas we get literally is an isomorphism to a perpetual motion machine. Once something gets to Foundry, maybe 20-30% of the work is still very technical, but a lot more of the work then gets applied to what is the ecosystem like and the regulatory environment. How much would we have to invest versus how sizable a business would this be? How much good would this really do for the world? If we didn't do this, would the world end up with that benefit anyway for some other reason or not? Working through all of those reasons, again, for the purpose of killing the project, even in Foundry, which is supposed to only receive things that have been heavily weeded, the goal is to have more than half of those projects be killed. When you hit more than half, you're clearly in a mode where the people in Foundry understand, even though they can be very passionate about the projects they're working on, 
that there's less than a 50% chance of doing it, so they can take pride in ending the projects for the right reasons. I mean, eventually, you know, for the self-driving cars, I'm pretty sure cars are going to drive themselves, since cars are already driving themselves. You know, for Project Loon, we have a lot of balloons up in the air. They're already doing LTE to the ground. People are actually like, receiving phone calls, so we know it's possible. Kind of, the ship has sailed, pun intended, a little bit on some of that stuff. But for a long time, the pressure is not, how can we make this work? It's how can we discover as fast as possible this is not going to work, so that we can get on to doing something else. I'm happy to keep going, but do you guys have questions? I want to make sure that I shape some of this for the stuff that you guys are thinking about doing. All right, cool points for the first question. Yeah? How would you apply this to big projects? Namely, something where you want to put a man on the moon or do a Manhattan project. Or have you thought about, say, Einstein's comment that uh, it's 90% perspiration rather than 10% inspiration. In other words, the devil is in the details, the hard part is doing it, as opposed to thinking of it, ideas are a dime a dozen. Right, well actually I agree, I just gave you an estimate which was also 90%. Believe me, we do a ton of perspiring. I'm describing that 90%, the learning part, as the perspiring. Because that 90%, you guys all know from whatever it was that was the last hard project you did, you didn't just sit there and navel gaze for that 90% of the time. You thought you had the right answer. And you perspired and you did stuff and it didn't work out. And you're like, oh man, that didn't work out. And then you have to learn and iterate. That process, which is the perspiring, that's what I'm talking about. What I'm describing is exactly the process of saying, whether you're making a rocket to go to the moon or you're making a car that drives itself, what might cause this to fail? Let's set up hypotheses. They're questions. Let me give you another example. I've run this experiment many times with different groups at X. Make me a list of the top 10 things that your team needs to do. No problem, Astro. And we get this list and is invariably ordered by the things they think will be most important, will be most well-received by the market, whatever that is. Thanks. All right, now humor me. Reorder that list. Instead of most important at the top, make it the thing at the top is the one that would cause us to learn the most. And the one at the bottom is the one that will cause us to learn the least. They reorder the list and is invariably a different ordering of the list. Okay. Why don't you just do the first two things on the list? Just humor me. Just do the first two things on that new list. And then we do them. And then I say, make me a top ten list of the things you think are most important. Forget the learning stuff now. And they do. And that new list is unrecognizably different from the previous list of ten things that they made. And then I say, that's why we focus on learning. <laughs> because if we hadn't done that, you would have done all ten things on that list. And somewhere in that list, you would have run across the things that actually caused you to learn, such that the rest of the things on the list turned out to be irrelevant. Why wouldn't you try to bubble those two things to the top of the list? Always. This is not about being smart. This is not about being smart. It's not about being creative. It's about choosing to spend your time on that. And I cannot overemphasize, you cannot just tell people to do what I just told them to do. This is, feel free to take the idea and run with it. You will discover that it doesn't work. Not because it's not true, but because people won't do it. 
it will be maddening to you. I promise you, as a young entrepreneurs, you will discover that people don't do it, and it will make your head explode that they won't do it. I'm speaking from personal experience. The reason they won't do it is because put yourself in their shoes. If you don't have someone who's ranting the way I'm ranting right now, if you do the things on that first list, the important stuff, you get the important stuff done, after a couple months you bring it to your boss, to the CEO of your business, and you say, look what I built. You got important stuff done. Good job, man. Hey, look what I built, if you follow that second thing. I just proved that we're totally wasting our time and we're going to have to start over. You really think that they're going to get a thank you? Because they don't think they're going to get a thank you. And if they don't think they're going to get a thank you, they're not going to do it. That's it. That's the hard part. It's not the reordering of the list. It's creating the culture where people are willing to listen to you about the reordering of the list. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, thinking of this from a post-mortem point of view, what do you think are the biggest challenges or causes of failures for a skunk work or organization like X uh, to operate within a bigger company such as Google? Um, one of the challenges for doing something... Yeah, sure, I, I will repeat it. I mean, the question is, what are some potential failure modes for doing something like X inside a larger you know, entity like Alphabet. And I'm not sure that this is a, a complete list, but if you are coupled too tightly to an organization, if you're busy trying to solve their problems for them, then their needs can whipsaw you in various ways. That can be productive in the good cases where you actually solve one of their problems, then they'll really appreciate it, and you have this sort of ready market for your thing that you made because they already needed it. And you don't have to think about what's hard and important. You just have to think about whether you can make the thing that they know that they need. Um, but in the end, businesses tend to be somewhat like a sigmoid, right? They're flat for a while, they go up really steeply, and then they taper off in, you know, in the long run. And the way businesses continue to grow in the longer term is by having more than one problem to have. So X's mission is to find some new problems for you know, us more generally to have, for the larger entity to have. And if that's our goal, to find new problems for us to have, we can't be overly constrained by what they think their problems are today. So it's a failure mode to be maybe too tightly coupled. Um, I also think it's a time horizon issue. Everything that I, I've just told you, I believe very deeply. But it's probably not the right thing to do if you have to you know, declare victory and cash in in three months. Over sufficiently short time horizons, Empowering people and trusting people is probably a waste of time. Over very short time horizons, you should probably just find the rock stars and you know, use fear and greed to get them to get stuff done. <laughs> I think that's probably, over sufficiently short time horizons, I think that's probably the right thing to do. The opposite is also true. If you have decades, you cannot over-trust and over-empower people. Even if somebody spends a half a year learning and growing and they waste some of the entity's money in the process of doing that, if you really have many decades before you have to declare victory, 
you'll get paid back many times over because of that growth, because of how empowered they feel. Now, the truth is time horizons are usually somewhere in between weeks and many decades. Uh, but if you set the time horizon f- wrong, uh, I think that can also potentially be a failure mode. X's time horizon, um, I would describe like this. We are looking for things that can really have a, a huge, meaningful impact on the world within about five to ten years. But if somebody were to bring me, we do this experiment frequently, when we have two things, this one maybe could change the world in four years, but we won't know for three and a half if it's any good. This one could take ten years to change the world, but we'll learn something every six months about whether we're on the right path. Forget that one. The difference between five or ten years, we're, we're kidding ourselves that we can even tell right now whether it's going to take five or ten. I want the one where we can learn along the way, not where it's this one-shot thing where we find out after three and a half years if we've been wasting our time or not. So I would say that's another potential failure mode, is ending up where you think you're a skunk works, but you're not a learning organization. You're a take-big-risks-blindly organization, which is probably not how I would suggest doing it. Yeah. What might be the most impressive proposal or idea that's come your way? Impressive proposal? Oh, yeah. So the question was, what's the most impressive proposal that's uh, come my way? You know, this might be an unsatisfying answer, but I don't don't judge it that way, and I I hope nobody at X does either. I think you might be surprised how much it feels collegial at X because there's, as soon as you allow too much one-upsmanship to enter the process, um, dangerous things happen. Uh, People start trying to get that award, and we don't want them to want that award. Um, I gave you this example before about the avalanche. It's a, I like that as an example because it's different. Not because she was right, but because she was way outside the box. Someone else, it wasn't her, but it was someone else asked a somewhat different question, which is, could you put a ring of copper around the North Pole, or the South Pole, I guess, and use the Earth's magnetic flux, right? The, the molten core of the Earth kind of sloshes back and forth a little bit, and you get sort of moving bee field, which would generate... Um, a current in this huge piece of copper that you put around Santa Claus's house, and then you could pipe that current back down here. It turns out not to work. But, I mean, it works. It just, it's not at all cost-effective. Um, but it actually would generate electricity. Uh, AC, obviously. But <laughs> very slow wave AC. I love those questions because they, they make me believe that we haven't even scratched the surface of our collective creativity as a species yet. Um, And it's important because it shapes something about X. Part of what I've just described about killing these projects as fast as we can has a hidden assumption in it, which I believe very strongly, but you have to believe this in order for what I've just described to be right. The cost of a false positive at X, at any innovation factory, is huge relative to the cost of a false negative. A false positive is where we think we have a great idea and it's not a great idea. That's a false positive. 
Well, if we think it's a great idea when it's really not, we're spending money, we're spending money, we're spending money, it's all this management time, the team keeps growing, and we're wasting all of our money because at least in this um, thought experiment, it's a bad idea. What's the cost of a false negative? If we say that something which is actually a great idea, we look at it and we say, no, that's not a great idea. That's only a cost to us if there's a really limited supply of great ideas, of really big problems with really innovative solutions. Sadly, humanity is in no danger of running out of huge problems to work on. And I really don't believe that we're in any danger of running out of really interesting, incredibly different um, potential solutions. And because both of those things are so rich and such great supply, that false negatives cost us almost nothing relative to the false positives, better to lean fairly heavily towards um, the false negatives rather than the false positives. Yeah? This relates to the pre-mortem. You said you had the thumbs up down to get things to bubble to the top. What do you do with the things that bubble to the top? Uh, a variety. So the question is, in these pre-mortems, when a bunch of people vote up something, there's now 50 or 100 people who've said, yeah, I agree, that might be a big risk for X or for Makani, our airborne wind turbine project. Uh, first of all, we take it seriously, like we look at it more. Number two, it depends because sometimes they have very different characteristics. If it was, you know, we're going to run out of space, right, then if that's a facilities issue, then that's not like kind of a panic. Like, we need to tell the facilities person that. Like, Makani might not even need to be involved in that particular case. Or, you know, if it's more of like a whistleblowy thing where it's, I think we're going so fast that we might be cutting corners on safety, okay? You can't just send that over to Makani as a whole and expect the right results. You might want to cherry pick the person there who's responsible for safety and say, what do you think about this? What kind of pressure are you getting? You know, give me examples of the last three times you know, something bad happened, like how bad was it? Um, sometimes we, if it's a pro, so that one might be a bad one to just send to, in this case, Fort is the general manager for the Makani project. If it's a safety thing, Eh, maybe just sending it to him isn't the right thing to do. But for some, you know, as long as it's not like Fort's a bad person and I think he needs to go, like, then we should just give it to Fort and say, hey, this is a real concern. What do you think? Um, often, not always, they actually will then respond on this pre-mortem thing in the, in the conversation. And frequently they will ask for more feedback. So if the concern is we're doing the wrong thing, Okay, thanks. I appreciate like your concern. That does not really tell us very much about how we should address that. Can you be more specific about what you think we're doing wrong? Um, we're going too slow. <laughs> that one happens a non-trivial amount. Okay, that might well be true, but that doesn't really tell us what to do about that. Can you be more specific before we understand how to route it to people? Yeah. So you mentioned two different kind of questions you ask when you get these ideas. How is this going to push the boundaries, but also how is the market going to receive this? So do you ever get ideas that maybe don't score evenly on those two questions? And maybe you have something like a device that can harness energy around the sun. And in five to ten years, you could learn a lot about that device and you could really push the boundaries in technology. But in five to ten years, that wouldn't be ready for the market. Is that still something you would explore at Google X? So the question is, what happens 
if something looks really incredibly promising on the technology front, but weak um, or only very delayed, maybe it's great, but 20 or 30 years from now on the business front, or vice versa, it looks like a great business, but it's kind of weak on the technology front. In both cases, again, because of our bias about the difference between the false positives and the false negatives, we mostly say no. We're not perfect. Reasonable people can disagree. You know, often there are some people who think, oh, there's no, nothing hard on the technology front here. Let's not work on this. And then someone else says, that's because you're not a mechanical engineer. You don't understand that this is like totally rocket science to make this thing happen that's just been proposed. So we do have some of those debates. But once they net out, usually if they don't have both of those things in healthy doses, we won't do it. And that means we throw out 99% of the stuff that even that we talk about seriously. But that's probably, it's still cheap because 100 hours on every single one of these things, throwing out 99% of them is still rounding error on the amount of total energy that we spend at X on the stuff that becomes mature. So if something is 20 years out from actually being something that we could bring to the world, have real impact on the world, I wonder whether that's the, right, the best way for us to help humanity relative to finding something that's only seven or eight years out, working on that, waiting, you know, and then 10 years from now, let's get back to that idea of yours when there's only 10 years till it's going to change the world. Yeah. How do you organize the knowledge so that most people can benefit from it? Um, so the question is, how do you organize the knowledge so that most people can benefit from it? There are two aspects to that. One is, when we come up with an idea internally or someone else gives us the idea and then we go through the 100 hours worth of work and we decide it's not the right idea, where do we write that down internally so we don't just like keep reinventing the square wheel over and over again? No, it's a square wheel that's no good when we've in fact already sorted out like 10 times that square wheels aren't any good. Uh, we're okay but not great at that. We have repositories internally for doing that. So it's not that we don't write it down, but how it gets shared could be better. The thing that kind of saves us from that, at least internally, is that we have a relatively focused group, the rapid eval group, so they all know where the repository is. So people in other parts of the organization probably don't know that it's there, but the people who are really responsible for figuring out in those early days, is this a round wheel or a square wheel? They know where they've written down their own failures and everyone else's failures, sort of these postmortems about why it actually didn't work out. Separate issue is when we discover that something isn't a good idea, how do we tell the world about that? It's complicated in various ways for intellectual property reasons. There's too many to talk about. Some of them, like the one you just conceptually brought up, we might not really have killed. We might just be pausing for 10 years. But... I just mentioned two in my TED talk uh, recently. One was about these lighter-than-air variable buoyancy uh, cargo ships. And so we were just sharing with the world some of the basic reasons why we decided not to do that. Someone else might decide to do it. Another one that I mentioned was vertical farming and why we got stuck on vertical farming, why we couldn't get past a certain point on vertical farming. And we've had a lot of people somewhat bristly come back and say, well, but I still believe in vertical farming. It's like, hey, that's cool. Like, we're just saying why we didn't. And the reason we didn't do it is because we couldn't figure out how to get staple crops like grains or rice to grow in vertical farming. If you want to grow like microgreens, like, go crazy. Vertical farming is awesome. You know, and that might be a nice business and it'll seem cool. 
you're not really going to change the world or like feed billions of people, you know, making microgreens in some 30-story farm. That's not like potatoes, rice, corn, wheat. Like those things are the kinds of things that if you can't do any of them, it's a little less plausible that vertical farming would really change the world. So we just described that to the world as a sort of, and in fact, in my TED Talk, I told people explicitly, if you know how to do this, come tell us, because this is what we got stalled on. If you have the, the missing piece for us, we'd love to resuscitate that project. So we do do that. I think it's not out yet, but we just had a big uh, project or it, that wasn't huge, but it was really near and dear to our heart. It was a good number of people working on it for kind of a while. Inside X, we really wanted this one to work out. We had some working prototypes. It just felt so good. And we've killed it recently, and we're uh, publishing a paper. Anyone have the date on like roughly when that's coming out? Not this year. Not this year? So, all right. <laughs> All right, so it's a peer review. It's like nature or something like that. So as soon as we get it through that process, it'll be out to the world. So we are serious about sharing. Yeah. In a non-technology and traditional business, how would some of these principles be applicable? And for example, let's take health insurance company. And I see opportunities of transplanting some of the ideas that I see and using that technology to change the business model a bit. But I'm struggling on the culture side, so any thoughts on should I even be pursuing that in a non-technology organization? The, qu the question is, how much is what I'm describing transplantable or not transplantable into an organization which isn't trying to be a moonshot factory, which might be a smaller business, it might be a less technology-focused business, or whatever that is. I don't think there's anything about what I said. We're focused on working on things that are big, hard technology problems. But that's a detail. That's specific to us. There's nothing about what I said that you could not do except in the presence of big technology problems. The, the technology is just happens to be an instantiation of it for us. But here's an example, um, which is another sort of a example of the culture. Um, in the sort of mid-days of glass, uh, I was worried that the team was going to get less creative as we moved prematurely into um, trying to ramp up manufacturing. So you have to take a bunch of people who are hyper-creative and kind of get them over the wall culturally into this sort of high execution mode, which is very uncomfortable for a lot of them, and you're bringing in new people to help with that process. And this often kills the very thing that you care about in these early organizations, which is the sort of rapid prototyping and the creativity. So I started a process which we called the Get Weirder Award. And the Get Weirder Award was given out once every two weeks. And in order to make sure it was clear to people what we wanted to reward, the reward was given out for the most creative proposed experiment. And we gave out the award before the experiment was run, so that there was absolutely no question that it was not about outcomes. Because outcomes you cannot control. You, as a scientist... You only care about the quality of the experiment. How thoughtful did you how thoughtfully did you design the experiment? How cheaply could you create the experimental apparatus for the experiment? And by experiment, I did not necessarily mean technology. This is actually answering your question. 
people from the customer service group won the Get Weirder Award, and from the sales group, and from the marketing group. Technology people did, designers did, but you can ask a super creative question. So one of the examples um, that happened was we had a one-day sale for glass, and we didn't we couldn't possibly staff up enough people to like man the phones and answer pre-sales questions. So the customer service group said, why don't we ask all of our existing customers, the explorers for Glass, if they would be willing to do pre-sales question answering. It doesn't matter whether it works. That's not the point. That was an awesome question, right? And, and has nothing to do with technology. And your organization will be successful to the extent that you get people doing that, asking those kind of questions. And they will only ask those kind of questions and run those kinds of experiments if they actually think they can get promoted for doing that and having it not work. Which, by the way, will almost exclusively not work. It happened to work in that case. It worked really well. But most of these experiments, the very ones that are weird, won't work out. If they all worked out, they wouldn't be that weird. Like, people would already be doing it. So you have to reward them beforehand. You have to reward them even if, I might even say, particularly when it doesn't work out. Or they just won't do it. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm wondering about how the structure can be implemented in groups where you don't have possible outcomes like promotion or like salarize or whatever. Like, how can you actually... Um, You can have, so the question is, when you don't have some of the classic structures for awarding people, like money or promotions, how can you do some of this culture engineering? People don't even respond the strongest to money. There's a ton of evidence out there that when you give people a raise in their salary, it has this ridiculously short life, you know, like they feel good for like a week, maybe, and then they totally forget about it. What people want is recognition. They want you to say thank you. They want to believe that their manager, that their peers think they're cool, think they're interesting, think that they'd be worth having on the next project. That, think about yourself. Isn't that what motivates you the most in the end, is being around people you trust and having them think that you're special to them? So if you can create any environment in which people can say to each other, hey, I really appreciate that. That makes me think you're special. And there's lots of ways you just give out cool points, like make little pieces of paper that say you know, one cool point and then hand them out. Or you don't like that, do something else. It doesn't matter what it is, but you don't need cash and you don't need promotions to do what I'm describing. Yeah. Um, you spent a lot of time in the beginning talking about culture engineering, uh, which is really fascinating, but it seems like culture engineering requires like, a lot of power for you to actually be able to like, implement these big changes. Most of us you know, going into our jobs, like. We're not going to have the ability to do kind of all the things that you described. We're, you know, towards the bottom. So I uh, ended up leaving my last job that I worked at for several years because it was really old school and not very interesting. So what do, what do we do to try to implement this culture from the bottom and not from the top? Uh, so the question is, if you're not the CEO, um, <laughs> how do you implement or change the culture? And that's a great question. Number one, good for you for leaving a boring place. 
That is a, itself an expression of power, by the way. That is a powerful thing you can all do, and you are disempowering yourself if you don't do it, and I encourage people to leave places, including X sometimes. If this is not the right place for you, don't humor me. Tell me this is not the right place for you. I'll help you find another place in some other part of Alphabet or somewhere else in the world. I definitely don't want you here if you don't want to be here. If you think that we're idiots, just tell me. I'm actually interested if you think we're an idiot. Um, And by the way, people tell me all the time that I'm an idiot, which is a little bit hard to hear. But in and amongst all the you're an idiots, I also hear lots of things that are wrong with X. And I, we fix it, like X is the worst moonshot factory in the whole world, except for all the other ones. And the reason it is, is because people believe that it's safe to say what's wrong with it, and then we like surface all of the bad stuff, and very slowly we're like taking care of it. So I just had a meeting today, I'm, I'm now the proud general manager of a different group um, at X um, that has um, some, some leader challenges. And I was sitting with someone today, I'm doing office hours, and someone came to me and said, hey, how are you doing? I don't really know what we should talk about. And I said, well, what's broken? Oh, there's, there's some stuff that's broken. Well, give me an example. Oh, well, you know, Bob over there is working on something that, uh, you know, we could buy for like $1,000. Have you said something to Bob? No. <laughs> Come on, and like Bob literally happened to be coming to my office hours like 30 minutes later. And I said, I'm going to tell Bob that you think that. I'm not throwing you under the bus, but shame on you for not having gone to talk to Bob. You should run and tell Bob before I tell Bob. Like, don't you want to be part of something where we're all like passionate and we're all, we have enough of a sense of urgency that we can't tolerate that kind of waste? That's not just me having power. I'm empowering him, yes, but I'm, I'm empowering him to be part of the change that he wants to see. And even if I hadn't done that, if he had come to me and said, you know, Astro, it's been a little bit crazy here. I've been along for the ride. I kind of want to believe. But this particular team within X, I don't know, I have my doubts. I think our culture has gone the wrong way. I'm this close to leaving. If you have my back, I will make a fuss. I will go rally us, me, I, you know, like I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, but I still, Bob or Sally or whoever, am willing to be one of your emissaries to change this and make it great. But you need to have my back, Astro. Ask for that. And if they have your back, go do it. And if they don't, quit again. Go find someone who will have your back. Or just be the CEO. I think half of you are sitting in this room because you plan to just be the CEO so you don't have to ask permission, which is its own kind of power. I'm sure you'll all agree this was totally fascinating. Please join me and thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.